0: All right, hey, thrilled that you're here. Go ahead and take your, if you don't have it already, Matthew 27, as Ansley had mentioned. We're going to be there in a few minutes. We're kind of in an in between. We finished up Christ and Culture last week. Next week, we end up with uh, Love Your Neighbor. All right, Love Your Neighbor, and by the way, is an all swim. There's uh, so many opportunities to jump in there. We'll be explaining it as well as a couple of exciting announcements that'll kind of be on behalf of our whole church will be during uh, that time period. uh, as well as uh, some cool ways we can minister to a lot of folks in actually these three counties. So here's, here's, uh, here's what we're looking at, Matthew 27. What, what do we need to do to get prepared uh, to take communion here in uh, just a little bit? Uh, that's what the point is today. Now, uh, when I was in England about a month ago, when we were there with a team, and as you know, we're partnering planting a church there right in, right there in the Queens Park area of, uh, of London. But when we were there, the church plant doesn't start till the spring, so we were over on a Sunday. So we went to a church called All Souls Church at Langley Place, which is really right in the heart of London. It's one of the few real strong Bible teaching churches uh, that are still there. I told you that London's about 2% Christian, and that has changed amazingly in like the last 100 years. So all being said, I was there, and that, that church was actually used to be pastored by a guy named John Stott, great author, great theologian, great pastor. And he's got a book, and if you're looking for a book to read, this is an old book, but it's a classic great book called The, the Cross of Christ. And in the preface, or in the early part of the book, he, he poses the question I want to pose to you, because he asked the question, he said, okay, what could have been the symbol of the Christian faith? He says, you know, every ideology, every religion, there's some kind of symbol that it's, okay, here's, here's kind of what our main conviction uh, as a church uh, or as an ideology or whatever, that, this is what we're about. And he began to list some of the possibilities of what could have been the symbol for the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, super early on when they were still heavily, heavily persecuted, uh, the church actually had that fish. Some of you all have it on the back of your car and you never knew what it was. It's actually what's called an ichthus and it's an acronym for a Jesus Christ as Lord, Son of God. And it's it's an acronym that they would do that was kind of insider information. But obviously a fish, a fish doesn't really... Portray what the Christian faith is about. It was just an acronym uh, that was helpful. So here's some of the possibilities Stott talked about in his book. He said, All right, the Christian faith, what, maybe it could have been a manger. I mean, a manger would have talked about that God became a man and dwelt among us. You know, the little baby in a manger, that's God. It could have been a manger. So instead of a cross around your neck as a necklace, you'd have been wearing like a little crib, a little baby manger, and we'd have Christmas year around. He's like, But it's not a manger. He said, It could have been, uh, it could have been like a carpenter's bench talking about early on before Jesus's public ministry started. There he was working at a carpenter shop, dignifying work and dignifying manual labor, but it's not a carpenter's bench. He said it could have been a boat. You know, a boat would have been about the teaching ministry of Jesus. That was a big part of his ministry. He would oftentimes get in a boat, push out a little bit from shore as the crowd gathered on the beach, and then he would teach them these amazing sermons. All right, but it's, but it's obviously it's not a boat either. He said it could have been an apron or a towel. It's like John 13 talks about how Jesus stooped down with probably the greatest act of humility and he washed the nasty feet of the disciples, all right? It's like, you know, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, but it's not that. It could have actually been a stone, all right, a stone, signifying the stone that was rolled away, allowing people to look in and see the empty tomb. It's not a stone. Some, he said it could have been a throne, a throne. It's like a throne. That's the picture of... To what John saw in the Book of Revelation that Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is on the throne, Jesus is in control. And he said but it's not even it's not even a throne. He said it could have been a dove. You know, a dove is like on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came down as as, a, as of a dove. And he says it wasn't that at all. And he kind of wraps it up in a great way. He says when it came to what was the symbol, what's going to be the Christian symbol? He said it wasn't it wasn't about it wasn't about his commemorating his birth, his youth, his teaching, his service, his resurrection, his reign, or even his spirit. He said it was going to be about his death. Now, the resurrection is the event. That is the event that said, you know what, paid in full, right? Offering accepted. Christ's victory over death is verified. Hear me on this. Everything God needs you to know about who he is can be found on those two cross beams 2,000 years ago. Because in those cross beams, you see the justice of God and you also see the love of God. You see the holiness of God on one end and you see the grace of God all wrapped up, all meeting there in the cross. And so, you know, what's going on there at the cross? What's happening there? A lot of times people, uh, it's like, how how did it go from the miracles that Jesus did and the healings that he did and everybody's like, yay, yay, Jesus, I mean, even a week before when he comes into Jerusalem, all right, Palm Sunday, when everybody's got the palm branches out, all right, palm branches out, they're like, hey, it's Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, how did it go from that to him being on the cross? And so Matthew 27 is one little snippet that we're going to look at, and again, contextually, this is toward the end of his ministry. He's been in ministry three, almost three and a half years at this point. And uh, the, the religious and the political leaders, they are all upset with him. The religious leaders are mad because they're jealous of him. The political leaders are mad because he would not bow down to the secular power, the Roman government, like they thought he should. You look at the, uh, the, the crowd is disappointed in him because he's not who they were hoping and praying. The Jewish people, again, they were disappointed. Where's our Messiah? Even the disciples one of them had already betrayed him at this point, and the other ones gonna, were going to soon abandon him. And so we get to this scene, and he would had these kangaroo courts, and you could go through the whole court system, how that was rigged and all of that, but now he's in front of a guy named Pilate, or Pontius Pilate, he's the governor. Now what you don't know is secular historians say that this was a very tense time for Pilate, because Pilate's boss, a guy named Tiberius Caesar, had warned Pilate at this point, because Pilate had made a bunch of knucklehead decisions up until this point. He'd made dumb decisions, and he'd gotten in hot water, and so the Jews got mad at him, and there was all these little insurrections that were going on. So Tiberius Caesar had told Pilate, based on the fact, if you got one more riot, you have one more uprising, you have one more mess up, and you're being replaced. So keep that in mind as we read this text, Matthew 27 15 to I think 22 says now at the feast now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted now the feast of the governor is during the same time as the feast of the Passover and basically what this was was there was a tradition tradition that started that said in order to kind of tamp down some of the tension between the Romans and the Jews what the Romans would do is they got used to saying okay we'll give you one prisoner back and as we, it's kind of like an act of goodwill. We'll give you this prisoner, so you guys kind of settle down, because they were well aware that during the Passover, tensions were super, super, super high. And so this was one way they tried to kind of, you know, keep the tension down just a little bit. Verse 16. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is kind of who we're going to use as our object lesson today. So Matthew calls him notorious John calls him a robber. Luke calls him an insurrectionist and a murderer. So this is, the, this is a guy that had been fighting in the streets. He'd obviously killed some Roman outpost soldiers, greatly hated, probably was the guy that was planned to actually physically die on the cross that Jesus ended up dying on. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ, who is called the anointed one. You can tell from the context he wants them to choose Jesus to some extent. He thinks they're going to choose Jesus. But as the story goes on, because he knew that it was out of envy, jealousy, that they had delivered him up. Besides, this is like a little parenthesis that you don't see anywhere else. It says, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Talking about Jesus. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. You're like, well, tell us about the dream. What about, I don't know anything about the dream. We don't know anything. We don't even know if it was from God. But somehow in there, she had a dream And she connected it to the righteous man that she had heard about. Maybe she had heard a little bit of a sermon and she sent word to the husband. It's like, don't mess with that guy. Don't mess with that guy. And now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The word destroy there is very interesting. It doesn't even mean kill. It means to, it's the idea of annihilate Don't just kill him, but kill any memory of him. Kill any movement that he's behind. Basically, wipe his name from the history books. It's like, how's that working out for you? Okay, verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And then verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why what evil has he done? So he already knows it. What evil has he done? He'd already been through all these little trials, and it's like, you guys are just making stuff up. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. So we've got to ask the question, what's he doing on the cross? What is he doing on the cross? For our point today, what is Jesus pointing to? Here in a little bit, you're going to take a little juice, and you're going to be past a little cracker. It's done because 2,000 years ago, shortly before Jesus gets crucified, he said, I want you as my disciples to do this in remembrance of me. So what does he mean when he says, this is my broken body for you? What does he mean when he says, this is my shed blood for the remission, the forgiveness of sins? How do I respond to that today? And I'm sitting in Western North Carolina 2,000 years later after this took place. How do I respond? What do I do to that? What's going on at the cross? So what I want to do for the best I can do for the next little bit of time before we enter into that is basically give you two things about what's going on at the cross. What's going on at the cross? We could spend months on this. After studying the Gospels now for years, here's what you see. You see that the Gospels themselves slow down at this time of Jesus' life. You see a total of three chapters that talk about the basically birth up until when his public ministry goes. All right. Then you see a number of chapters about the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, but it's like the Gospels slow down in the last week of Jesus. And so we want to slow down. What's going on? What's going on at the cross? Here's the first thing I want you to kind of put on the table today is he is substituting, and so you and I can say without a shadow of a doubt, I am loved. you got to get this down. What's he doing on the cross? He's substituting on the cross, and because he's substituting on the cross, I can say today with confidence, I'm a loved person. I'm a loved person. And what you want to understand is it's not that just Jesus died for us, What you're going to see is Jesus died instead of us. And so when you're looking at a screen here in a little while and you see these scenes of the cross and so on, don't look away. Don't look away. You want to look there and go, you know what? Uh, That's instead of me. That's instead of me. I am Barabbas. Because, see, Barabbas is one of the clearest pictures of the whole idea of substitution in the Gospels about what's going on. Remember, he lived in a time of great revolution. Uh, Romans had subjugated the Jewish people. Insurgents were battling all the time. And Barabbas was obviously one of those. Keep in mind, as I said earlier, this was the Passover time. Passover was the biggest part. It was like our Christmas and New Year's wrapped all into one. This was like their week. And just a little bit of church background, if you're not familiar with this, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where God in his righteous anger said, listen, I am going to basically apply justice to every single family unless you provide a substitute. And he said, the substitute is I want you to go out and as an act of your faith, I want you to take a lamb, I want you to kill the lamb, and I want you to spread the blood over the doorpost of your house. And he said, if I see that, if I see that act of faith, if I see that substitution, then I will, quote, pass over I will pass over that house. One of the things we say all the time here is, all the Bible is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is not the liberated, a progressive a version of God, and the Old Testament is God being angry, and the New Testament is God being happy. The whole Bible is about God, all right? The whole Bible is about Jesus. So even in that lamb, what he's saying is this one: You have a choice. All right, either your child dies, your family dies, or the lamb dies. Either you pay for the justice of God or somebody else pays for the justice of God. And what's amazing here, and I didn't even realize this till this week, there's an unusual thing that happens at this particular Passover that he shares with his disciples. Because with his disciples, there's a bunch of different elements in the Passover meal. And what you see in the Gospels when Jesus shares the Passover meal, it says he stands up and he blesses the food and he holds up the bread. All Passover meals had bread. And then he stands up and he blesses the wine. All the Passover meals had wine. But I didn't really realize until this week, not one of the Gospels ever mentions the main course of the Passover meal. There's no mention mention in the Gospels at this Passover meal of a lamb. I mean, what kind of Passover meal are you going to Listen, this was not like a vegan deal, all right? It's like, hey, we don't want to have meat here. The whole thing was about the lamb, about the meal. It pushed toward that. And yet, you can't say just from silence, but what you can say is there's no mention of the lamb at this Passover meal, and the only thing I can think of is because there was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. He says, you know what, I'm the Lamb of God. All that that Isaiah and everybody had talked about, Isaiah says this, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all And something I can't even fathom. It says it actually says it was the will of the Father to crush him. I mean, it's a dad, I can't even fathom that. It says it was the will of the Father to crush the Son says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressions. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood poured out for you. In other words, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one that John the Baptist was talking about when he stepped out on the beach and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when we talk about the Passover lamb, the Bible in the New Testament says, you know what, Jesus was our Passover lamb. And so you get to this whole scene and the governor's like, I gotta release somebody, I gotta release somebody. And everybody knew Barabbas and knew what he'd done, all the severity of his crimes. So it's not a stretch at all to say that the cross that Jesus, because we knew that three people are scheduled to die. And we know there were two thieves, two murderers that were crucified right beside him. Because of the severity of the crimes that Barabbas actually did, it is not a stretch of the imagination at all to say that, you know what, the cross that Jesus actually physically died on would have been the cross that Barabbas would have physically died on. I mean, I can't, just take for a moment, think about for just a moment what it must have been like to be Barabbas at this scene. I mean, Barabbas wakes up that morning, everything in his life says that I'm gonna be dead by sundown. I'm not going to make it. But that, and, and then all of a sudden, that evening, you're sitting around having beers with your friends like, man, what a great day. What a great day for me. What a great day for me. So here's what scholars say. Scholars say Barabbas' name is an, actually a very odd yet generic vanilla kind of name. Bar means son of. So you take Barabbas, cut it in half. Bar means son of. Abba means father. You put them together and it basically means son of man. Son of man, everyday guy, Joe screwdriver. He means he represents every man. What we do know is just like Barabbas, we've rebelled against the rule of God. We've rebelled against the authority of God. And so Jesus, a man of perfect goodness, died in our place. He took the cross that was intended for us. Now I know some people push back against that, but let me just, let me put it this way. Uh, Martin Luther, who was the kind of the leader of the Protestant reformer hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he put it best when he talked about that on the cross, quote, on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor, the blasphemer, the cruel oppressor. You will become David the adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. And so we can keep that cycle rolling. You will become the husband who's neglected and abused his family. You will become the woman who cheats on her husband. You will become the drug addict. You will become the teenager lying to her parents. You will become the hypocrite leading a double life. You will become the apathetic businessman who just pops into church every once in a while with no lordship at all. You will become that man. Paul would say, you know what? He became sin. He became sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That whole idea of substitution started way back in Genesis, went into Exodus, was talked about so that then we'd be able to say, you know what? Paul says, for God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So... I know there's a number of folks, I know it's kind of progressive thought, I know that it is uh, um, kind of cool to say nowadays in the last 30, 50 years particularly, and they say, no, 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 on the cross, Jesus wasn't paying for sin because God is not a vengeful God who is angry at sin trying to exact punishment for us. The liberal theologian would say, if anything on the cross, Jesus was just demonstrating the depth of God's love for us. What? what I mean the author of the shack basically said the same thing in a book that was called Lies We Believe About God Michael Gunger, who wrote a song best selling song a number of years ago called Beautiful Things here's what he said and I just quote him he said uh, that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful it's horrific He said, I would love to hear fewer Christian artists sing about a father murdering his son. And if you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, stop singing. The irony that the guy that wrote the song, Beautiful Things, could be blind to the most beautiful thing is amazing. Because when you look at the text, when you look at what the Bible is talking about overall, The fact that Jesus paid for our sin is not a contradiction of his love. It is an absolute necessity of his love. Let me think about about it this way. If you've ever walked through a family member with a family member who had cancer, if you walk through that, trust me, what you will say is you will almost personify cancer and you will hate cancer. You know why? Because you love that person and cancer is destroying that person that you love so much. So you will develop a hatred for that cancer. Sin was destroying us. Sin was taking the glory of God away. And so he, does it to say that he hates sin, that he's angry at sin? That is not hard to believe at all. Other times people will say, well, actually, actually what's happening is he wasn't really paying for sin. That was just a demonstration of his love. Now just logically, And biblically, that doesn't hold water. But just to say, well, what he was trying to show us when he died on a cross was just how to love other people. What? What an insult to actually say that if there's like seven other ways we can be forgiven, but I'm gonna go ahead and get my own son flogged, beaten, spit upon, shamed, and then crucified... good friend, J.D. Greer in Raleigh, who will be here next year to preach, said, uh, he put it the best way. He said, the logic of that argument is as if I was walking down the street with my kids and I were to say, do you know how much your daddy loves us? Do you know how much your daddy loves you? And they're like, how much daddy? And then I jump in front of a car and die. If there was no purpose in jumping in front of the car, if I wasn't trying to save my kids or protect my kids, that would not be some awesome act of love. That would be an act of stupidity. Why would I jump in front of a car if there was not a purpose to it? If there was not an end game, if there was not something that I was trying to protect them from? That's why it says this. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's why Peter says, It is with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. That is why our message here is not become a good little boy scout or a good little girl scout or pull yourself up by your bootstraps or be a nice church person. It's not that at all. The number one message of Jesus is not be a good person. The number one message of Jesus is it is finished, okay? It is finished. I paid that. It's an announcement. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not for you to become a moral person. It is to believe and behold the son of God and then let him change your life. And it's in that order. Religion flips it, but the gospel is believe and then you become, then you are changed. And I would just say this, some of us, even as a Christian, you you default away from this. As a matter of fact, I would say understanding this could be the single biggest influence in your relationship with God. I don't know how many times, I mean, I can feel it some myself, and then I hear it a hundred times all the time. It's like, I wish I could love God more. I want to love God more, but I, I want to spend more time praying. I wish I was as fired up as my wife next to me in the worship services. I wish I wanted to pray, and da-da-da, and just all that. I want to, I want to. Part of the reason might be connected. Tozer put it this way. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And so many of us, and I've heard it and I've listened to it, so many of us believe that God is, even as a Christian, that God is constantly frustrated with you. He is constantly disappointed with you. He is constantly dissatisfied with you, whether it be because of your lack of progress or you failed again or whatever. And so what do you do when somebody is dissatisfied with you? What do you do when somebody is angry with you? Same thing my kids, when my kids were real small, if daddy was angry, if daddy was angry, dad's dad's mad at us, what it was is steer clear from dad. That's what it was, steer clear from dad, give him room to cool off, he's in the study and he's ticked, so steer clear. But man, if it was like, man, dad is fired up about us and he's in a great mood and all this kind of stuff. It's like, let's wrestle and let me run to them. And they're jumping all over my neck and arms and let's play and let's do hide and seek. What's the difference? The difference is, all right, one, my dad's angry with me. I don't want to go near him. The other one is, My dad loves me and my dad is not angry with me. I want to be with him. And I say all that to say this. Listen to me. The good news today is is because of what Jesus' death on the cross meant, because of his payment on the cross, that satisfied, which is actually the word propitiation in Romans 3, that satisfied the demand of a holy God. Listen, because what Jesus did on the cross satisfy the demands of a holy God. That means if you're in Christ, he cannot be dissatisfied with you at the same time. You understand that? One lady understands it, okay? One lady's like, yes, that's awesome. Amen just means I believe that. So let me give you another crack at that, all right? So here's what that means. That means when you look at what Jesus did on the cross, The fact that his payment on the cross satisfied a holy God, that means he cannot be dissatisfied with you in Christ. Slightly better, slightly better, but uh, let me give it to you another way. Um, Here's the way a lot of us think about it. It's like um, God's going to love me when I get my stuff together. When I get my stuff together, he's going to love me. Put this somewhere in your lunch pail. God is not in love with some future version of you. He's not in love with some future version. You know, when she does this and when she's a better mom and when she takes care of all that stuff in her past, God is not in love with some future version of you. Don't you understand? God already knows the future anyway. So he's not waiting for some future version of you to love you. If you're a son or daughter in Christ, he loves you right now. Not because you performed well, but because Jesus performed well. Not because of your resume, but because of Jesus's resume. Okay? I'll give you there's a great little Old Testament picture that's sometimes hard to even imagine. There's a there's a minor prophet named Zephaniah. Anybody in Zephaniah this week? Okay, maybe. <laughs> Zeph Zephyr who? Zephaniah. There's actually it's actually a couple of chapters of not that great of news. But then toward the end it starts taking a picture of what it's going to eventually be like in Christ and here's here's his picture. And he said that the Lord the Father will exalt over you. One translation says rejoice over you with singing. What a picture that is. The picture is of a father, a tender father singing singing over his son or his daughter. Now, you know what? If I sang when my kids were small, that would keep them awake. But when Lori would sing to them, because of her voice, it's just like, Jesus loves me. And man, that was terrible, wasn't it? It's was like, Jesus loves me. They were just like, all their fears and anxieties, like, mm, I'm in my Snuggie, I'm sitting there, my parent loves me, and it calms them down. Do you understand that's the way God looks at you if you're in Christ? He looks at you, it's like, that's my daughter right there. And I love her. I know all her stuff, but I love who I'm making her. I love who she's becoming in Christ. And if you don't know that, you're never gonna wanna spend time. You're never gonna wanna let his grace change your life. You're just gonna run from him instead of run to him when you do mess up. You're not even gonna trust him when things go wrong. All right, so God's angry at me, so that's why he allowed this. He allowed this. He doesn't love me because he allowed this to happen. That's why you gotta ground it in the cross, Okay. The cross ought to tell you if you're going through a hell on earth right now, I don't care what it is, if you're, going, if you're in Christ and you're going through a hard time right now, what the cross ought to tell you just in a pastoral perspective is there's no way that he has left me or forsaken me. The cross shows me that, all right? The resurrection shows me he's going to finish what he started in my life, but I can know that he hasn't walked away from me just because I've gone through this. As a matter of fact, he's probably rolling up his sleeves walking towards you in this trial, And if you don't know the cross, if you can't go back and say, "I don't have to doubt," you're like, "I don't feel loved. I don't feel loved." What more could Jesus do than die on a cross to show that He loves you? Well, He can make it rain, or He can make He can make it's going to raise. Yeah, that's called the blessings of life. But before you go, God doesn't love me because He He let this happen. What more could He do? And when we look at this. Here's the second little picture I gotta show you before we take the Lord's Supper. Here it is, he's suffering, and so I gotta respond. I, uh, he's suffering. And I told you a while back, I, I told you a while back that when we went through the Garden of Gethsemane, we went through the whole scene and how spiritually, we went through some of the words on the cross and how spiritually that was, that was what set it apart from it. Because a lot of people got crucified in that day. Romans crucified a lot of people. But two things, number one, they always would crucify him for their own crime. And number two, there's nobody that was taking the sin debt of the world on them. So go by. when he's down on the cross, it is true that the spirit, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most theologians say, you know what, that's the moment when all the sin debt of the world, every vile, depraved, wicked, despicable thing you ever see on the news is being poured out on Jesus at that point. But it's not to ignore the physical part of the crucifixion. Verse 23 says, they say, crucify him, crucify him. The Romans, I think it was the Persians actually that invented crucifixion, but it was the Romans that perfected it and they were good at it. And I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm not gonna try, I'm just trying to tell you what you're gonna see on the screen here in a bit. That's not some overdramatic Mel Gibson, you know what, he just went overboard. If anything, that is a mild version of what actually happened during crucifixion. We could talk about the floggings. We could talk about the cat and nine tails with the little pieces of bone and stone that they, would, they were great at it. I mean, the Roman guards could like pop that whip and it would just start to peel the skin back. All that's happening even before the crucifixion. But don't discount what's happening there even in the suffering. I'll give you a couple of examples here because here's kind of how it worked. When you were crucified, you actually would, you would hang down, all right, you would actually hang down suspended by your arms because your feet were nailed To the cross, so they really couldn't support you. So you were suspended by nails through your wrists. And what would inevitably happen is your shoulders would then pop out of joint as you tried to hold yourself up. The blood vessels around the stomach would become swollen and engorged. As you were hanging there, you couldn't breathe very well and so you would begin to suffocate, and so you would kind of hoist yourself up a little bit with your arms to take a breath. Then when you obviously tried to pull yourself up, then the nails that were in your wrist would start to tear the flesh. It would cause obviously pain from that. You would grind against the bone from your shoulders being out of joint. They say you would almost always just have these just amazingly painful cramps in your muscles, so you would have to let go. From the hanging position, you would draw air into your lungs. You could, but because of where you were, you couldn't really get it out very good. So at that point, when you felt like you couldn't hold your breath any longer, you'd pull yourself up again to take another breath and you'd go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And so for six hours, Jesus alternates between the pain of just the searing pain and then the panic of actually suffocating to death. So every time he would pull himself up or let himself down, his back, which was torn up by the whips, the muscle and the bone would further be torn open by the, this isn't some slick piece of wood that was finally done as a piece of wood with splinters and all the stuff more than likely had been used before. So you had all that stuff on there before. And eventually the victim would end up dying, usually by suffocation. So, uh, What's Jesus pointing to when he holds up the bread and the cup, when he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you? What he's referring to is what the whole Bible has been pointing toward. It's what Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus said, he would be wounded for our transgressions. 700 years before, he's like, there's coming somebody who is going to be the Passover lamb. It would take away our lies, our lack of mercy, our greed, our passing up the person who needs some help from us, and yet we don't, our rebellion, our refusal to let him be in charge, all those things. Sometimes people will go, well, why couldn't God just forgive our sin and kind of leave it there? I mean, why couldn't he just say, hey, I know you guys have kind of learned your lesson. Everybody back in the pool, let's all go. How come, didn't, how come he didn't just forgive everybody? By definition, by definition, forgiveness means that a debt has been paid. And even before that, a debt has been incurred. Okay, so uh, for example, I I hate to say this because you might ask for it, but um, if you were to ask me, hey, uh, could I borrow your truck? We are uh, moving and I need to borrow your truck to move our stuff. Um, um, Let's just say in a fantasy world, I said, sure, you can borrow the truck. Let's just say that happened. So what would happen is this, is you would borrow the truck and then, uh, you know, lo and behold, you wreck it. All right. You're not, you're messing around. You're trying to put too much stuff in there and you wreck the truck. And then you come to him and you're like, Hey, wrecked your truck, wrecked your truck. Uh, we would have a conversation. Here's how that conversation would, would probably go. Okay, right? It was like, well, who's going to pay for the truck? Who do you think is going to pay for that truck? You're going to pay for that truck. All right. You're like your insurance. Yeah, but your rates are going to go up. So you're going to pay for the truck. If by some grace of God I looked at you and said, you know what, hey, I won the lottery. Just kidding. Let's just say I won the lottery and had all this money or whatever. Some of you are like, does he play the lottery? You're not. Just listen to the, listen to the point, all right? Listen to the point. The point is, the point is, if just by some a miracle I'm like, you know what, forget about it. That $2,000 worth of damage, the fact he jacked my truck up, I will pay for it. I'll pay for it. What's the point? The point is, somebody's gonna pay for it. You can't just say it's all forgiven because either you pay for it to fix it or I incur the debt, but when I incur the debt, I pay for it. And so when you're talking about why doesn't he just forgive everybody, real forgiveness always requires a price to be paid. What I wanna ask you is this, because here in the Lord's Supper, what he says, he says, take and eat, this is my body. There's an act of volition on your part to say, you know what, I am actively Putting all my chips in the center of the table and I'm saying, I'm believing Jesus is who he says he, who he is and I'm believing he did exactly what he said he would do. I'm believing that. If you don't know Christ, I would just, it wouldn't be good to take the Lord's Supper, all right? Not because you're trying to be snooty. It's just like, this is a Christian deal because what you're doing is you're celebrating the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And so here's some responses we can make before we do this. Number one, you see a response that Pilate made. I'll just call him the distracted. Pilate's distracted. Pilate's got a lot of other stuff. It's not that he thinks poorly of Jesus. He actually doesn't. He's actually going, man, this guy is innocent. This guy has not done what you say he did. He's just too distracted with other stuff to really take the question seriously. This represents about 40 or 50% of the people right now here. Basically, it's this. I'm too distracted with other stuff to really seriously consider Jesus. It's like, hey, Scooter, we're coming to church. You ought to be happy we're coming to church. I'm just trying to say this. Church is a terrible hobby. Church is a terrible hobby. Being a Christian is a horrible hobby. If it's just a hobby, pick a better one. Pick a cheaper one. Pick one that doesn't ask so much, for Pilate it was basically I'm too distracted, I'm too distracted and what it sounds like today is uh, this is something I'll think about when I'm older, when I'm an adult, when my career's been settled, when we have kids, when I get married, when I get this promotion but right now I'm having too much fun, I'm having a good time with my friends, I'm establishing my career, Whatever it's just that it's too consuming to give serious thought to Jesus, and I can say this as nicely as I can. That's foolishness, man. It's foolishness. It's foolishness for two reasons. Number one, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? And the Bible says, you know what? God has put eternity into your hearts. So you know when all the friends are gone and all the booze is gone and all the women are gone and all that stuff is gone, and you put your head on your pillow, how's that working for you? But even the bigger question is, Jesus said, "What would a man give up? What would he exchange? What would he exchange for his own soul?" What does he change? If you're really thinking, okay, my soul or my friends, I want my buddies, I want my golfing buddies more than I want my soul, that's just a terrible exchange for you. That's a bad plan. That's just the distracted. Here's the one that's also in this room, and that's the disappointed. That's the crowd. Scholars debate whether or not the crowd was the same crowd that was a week earlier saying, Jesus, you're awesome. Palm branches, there's a debate. Some people like, it's the same crowd. Other people, it's not the same crowd. Chances are, it was a mix. Be very doubtful that none of the people that were sitting there waving the palm branches a week earlier, that none of them made it into this crowd. But for some reason or another, and granted, they got worked up and they got the mob mentality, but chances are, some of them were pretty disappointed because this was not the Messiah. This was not the Christos, the Christ that they actually hoped for. He was supposed to come in and kick tail and take names of the Romans, and now they're the ones crucifying him. And so we're disappointed how this turned out. And I can say this as, I say this as nice as I can. You're gonna get disappointed. People who say, I've never been disappointed at all. I mean, ultimately, you're not gonna be disappointed with God, but you're gonna be surprised with the way God works Sometime, correct? Christian, you, you, don't leave me up here hanging. You've never been... When I hear these testimonies, like, God never disappointed me. Well, I... He's disappointed me. It's not that he did the wrong decision. It's just because of my immaturity. It's like, well, you know, I wish I'd have had this. And but granted, in hindsight, you're not disappointed. It's the we said a few years ago. It's the Garth Brooks theology. You know, what I mean, thank God for unanswered prayer. Okay, thank you that you didn't do this. But at the time, was I disappointed? Absolutely. And maybe you're disappointed. Maybe you prayed about something that didn't happen. Maybe you prayed your wife would stay and she left. Maybe you pray your mom would beat the cancer and she passed away whatever those are those are there but the question you ultimately have to ask is when it comes to your life in Jesus do you like Jesus because of what he's what he will do for you or do you like Jesus and do you love Jesus because of who he is the question you really got to ask is do I love Jesus because he's useful to me or because he's beautiful for the crowd he was useful but when he was no longer useful he's like put him up let's forget about that one preacher says he's like a tire iron It's like a tire iron you know you want a tire iron you just don't want to bring it out in front of all your friends you put it in the car you put it in the trunk in case you need it that's useful when it's useful you bring it out but there's nothing beautiful about a tire iron question on the floor is Jesus useful to you or is he beautiful to you useful to you sounds like this well you know what the reason we come to church the reason we're kind of Christian I kind of I kind of like what he's doing you know our marriage was messed up so he did that and he's useful to give me peace in life and to help raise our kids to be good little boys and good little girls and maybe I get to go to heaven but he's not beautiful in and of himself which one describes you better I would challenge you that he is beautiful in and of himself If he never did one other thing for anybody in this room, he would be more than beautiful for us to worship and fall down. As a matter of fact, let me just say this, because that's the the next group. Some of the people actually, it's like a Roman guard. There's some women that eventually do, but eventually, by the way, eventually, you know, everybody's going to worship. You understand that part? Eventually, I'm not talking about universalism, but eventually every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Right now, we get to worship and bow down as a savior. Eventually, you're going to worship and bow down if you never receive him as your judge, but you will bow down. And the question is, do you take advantage of the opportunity now like some of them did? And by the way, speaking of worship, uh, Christian, let me ask you this. I'm going to give you another shot here in a second, but just for example, let's say an atheist was sitting next to you when you sang those first three songs, when you sang the power of the cross, when you sang king of kings, when you sang lion of the lamb, if there was an atheist, somebody didn't believe in God, maybe they just kind of came in here because somebody invited them, what would they think of how great your God is? What would they think of how powerful your Jesus is if the only witness they had was how fervently and enthusiastically you worshiped in those first three songs? Okay. If a Muslim sat beside you, what he think? You know what, their God is greater than my God. If all their witness was was this is how they worshiped. You're like, well, I don't feel like worship. I don't really feel like worshiping. Please hear me. You don't feel your way into worshiping. There are commands over and over, you and I worship, not because of the way we feel. It's a mistake when you're like, I don't feel, you don't look in here to worship. I don't feel like worshiping. You don't look in here to know whether you should worship. You look up there and say, because of who God is and what he said, then I'm gonna worship and I'm gonna trust that if I look up there, God's gonna eventually change what's in here. And so what you have to do is make a choice. I'm gonna worship today. I'm gonna give His chance here in a second. We're gonna we're going to do that. And the last one is this, is Barabbas. We never really find out how he responded. We don't know. We don't know. Did he turn to Jesus? We don't know. Did he go, man, I can't believe it. When I finally saw you down on that cross, I realized that was for me. Did that what he, is that what he did? Or did he just kind of go, man, lucky me. Again, I think the reason is you don't see the reason, you don't know the story, because the question is really for us to ask, what will we do? What will we do?